and thank you for joining us for part two of the IntelliCast Future of Insights Summit podcast series. Uh, I'm here joining me as always, um, or most of the time, because I wasn't here all the last one. Yeah, you weren't on episode one. <laughs> Brian Lamar, how are you? Great, how are you? I'm excited. Um, these have been pretty good interviews so far. Yeah, we're just winding them down. This is. Uh, I think people will enjoy this episode. Yeah, so uh, in this episode, you're going to start out with Brianna Silver of Silver Consulting, um, and then following that with Dr. Ari Zelmanow, um, who has a lot of different jobs, but uh, he also works at Twitter. Um, and uh, this kind of continues our series as we talk through some speakers that are going to be at the Future of Insights Summit at the University of Georgia, December 5th through 6th, part of the MMR program. Uh, Brian, what was the something that you're getting from these interviews so far? Um, well, you weren't around for the um, Dr. Ari Zelmanow interview, mm-hmm. and he was... So I, I would recommend listening to it. He's a super interesting guy. He comes really with really strong takes, which I love, uh, which may be controversial to some. I mean, we're talking about his best foods and stuff. I mean, it's yeah. Not that controversial, but it's interesting. It comes really strong. I'm super excited to hear him speak at Georgia. He's talking about small sample size and how his rant was about um, people think that you need too many interviews, which is an interesting rant. Um, so he's an interesting guy. And then Brianna Silver, um, she's going to be talking about design thinking, and that's kind of been a trend in research. And she talks about how this is really for all people in the audience. It's for students to listen to. It's for experienced researchers. I'm not an expert at design thinking, so I'm looking yeah. forward to that. But she's an interesting interview as well. Yeah, I was super interview uh, interested with both these interviews, even though it wasn't with the Dr. R one. Um, it, he, he's just a fascinating person. Like he can talk and like you can connect with him pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and then Brianna, um, I got a lot from her uh, on just the professional and personal level, like um, her vulnerability, what she talks about as far as going through either starting her career or what kind of has made her better and that separation of work versus life um, is really like was awesome to me and it allowed me, kind of gave me a little bit more courage to think about things and, th- and speak about things. Um, so I'm excited for both of those. And I think the audience is going to love those at the Future of Insight Summit. Uh, well, let's just jump right into the interviews. First one is going to be Brianna Silver of Silver Consulting. Joining us now is Brianna Silver, president and founder of Silver Consulting. Brianna, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're super excited. We're going to join this series of speakers at the Future of Insight Summit coming up in December at uh, UGA. Um, and, and wanted to get you on and kind of get kind of a preview of what you're talking about uh, and just learn more about you at the same time. Sounds great. Uh, one of the first things that we always ask any guests that we have on, uh, and sometimes this is a similar answer, but sometimes we really get shooken up, is um, how did you get your start in market research? So I have a very unconventional start, which I think probably is a very similar answer to get from most uh, market researchers. But uh, uh, so I actually come to market research by way of design. So my undergrad is in communication design. My graduate degree is in human-centered communication design and design strategy. And so what that really looks like is trying to find the inter- like the intersection between design and business. And a big part of design is understanding what will people, what do people want and need, you know, both spoken and unspoken needs associated with that. So when I did my graduate degree, it focused a lot on design research, which is really based in anthropological methods, oftentimes ethnography being a big uh, key method that's leveraged for that work. And when I first got out into the professional world after graduating, 
I found myself in very diverse and in cross-functional teams. And so generally speaking, I was the only designer in those teams. And now I was in teams with sociologists and market researchers and engineers and product, product design people and, you know, basically all different roles. And I realized that in many cases, we all had different, we all had a similar goal in the sense that we were looking to understand people and design something that was going to really bring meaning to their life. But we all had different tools and techniques to, to yield that information and being exposed to a lot of the tools and methods of market research, I really quickly saw how those augmented the tools and techniques that I had learned, you know, in my graduate, uh, my graduate education. And so as I started to develop my professional practice, I've done so with the, in, with the intention to, to really merge both market research and design. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it is kind of similar. A lot of times we hear people say they fall into it. Uh, but you have a great story. Um, and, and try to merge what you expected and, and where you are now. That's awesome. Um, so so I guess from there, like, talk to us a little bit about Silver Consulting. Like, um, what was that startup like? Uh, what made you want to start your own company? That type of thing. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So just largely speaking, you know, what is Silver Consulting? I'll start there. So we support organizations and brands to lead the transformation of their businesses and brands into the future. So we're helping organizations to define the what, how, and why to their existence. Um, and, and where we sit in the industry, much to the story that I just shared, is really at the intersection of design, market research, and strategy. Um, and so how we got here is also very, that is very accidental. So after yeah. I graduated uh, from graduate school, I went and started working for an organization called Daytex Ameda that made anesthesia machines and ventilators. And I was working on a team that was really looking at, you know, designing uh, the future business of this organization. So what new verticals could they get into that really leveraged the brand equity that they had around the globe? And just a couple months into, you know, starting that position, they were, they were purchased by GE Medical, and, and soon thereafter, our team basically had the option of becoming usability specialists, or, uh, or we didn't have a job anymore. And at that mo moment in time, you know, I definitely was very schooled in user experience, and that's where my you know, background is in, but very much on the strategic side of that. Whereas usability, you know, now we're looking back like 18 years ago, usability was fairly tactical. And... And that wasn't really where my, what made my heart sing. And so I made the conscious decision to not take that position. Um, and at the same time, I was trying to figure out, you know, what was I going to do life-wise, whether I was going to come back and stay in Chicago because I was living in Madison at that moment in time, or go to the East Coast, which is where I'm from. And so I came back to Chicago, gave myself a three-month timeline to try to figure my life out. <laughs> and, yeah. and within the first two weeks of being back in the Chicagoland area, uh, you know, just sort of by the grace of God, landed a, a contract position at uh, AB and Amaro LaSalle Bank, uh, really supporting their transaction banking group to bring customer centricity into the new product development process. And that really was the birth of the company. Um, you know, it happened very, you know, very like, quickly um, and 17 years ago now. And I just kind of kept finding those jobs and that seemed to be a good fit for me. And, you know, about eight months into that journey, I finally, I finally found like a traditional job that seemed to be a good fit and I no longer wanted it. And so I had to really take that into reflection and say, 
why. And what I realized is in that eight month period, I had really found joy in the exponential growth that I was having by being an entrepreneur. And, oh, that's good. and finally, once I, once I realized that I was no longer defining and identifying myself by my trade, but rather my path of entrepreneurship, I knew that I was in this for the long haul. <laughs> that is, um, wow, it's wild you say that. I just had the kind of same thought come up the other day, like identifying yourself by your trade and what the success is of your trade rather than the joy of what the journey and what things go after. Um, it's huge. I think that a lot of times it gets lost and that you keep true to that with your entrepreneurship is a big thing. Uh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to dive back into to how your firm uses design and how you focus so much on design uh, and kind of marrying the two between design and market research. Um, talk to us a little bit more about this. Like, like what types of, of benefits are, do clients see from taking that approach, I think, rather than the typical uh, market research approach? Yeah, this is a great question. So I think there's a couple of things that really separate design from from market research, uh, you know, particularly sort of the researcher's role within both of those two professions. Um, and specifically also sort of the ways in which you're working. Um, so, you know, one of the things is just kind of like, what is the role of an insight? So when you are talking about market research, in many cases, when a market researcher is done with their work, I mean, certainly there's some socialization that has to happen in, in organizations. So like if you're internal to the organization, you're socializing those insights. Um, but the way that a, that a design, designer would think about those insights, so a design researcher, is it's less about sort of socializing the insights, but it's more about helping, helping people within the business to really integrate those insights into the work that they're doing. So I think one of the key differences, at least that our clients talk about, is the level of actionability that oftentimes comes from our work. Um, and, I, and, and I've done a lot of thinking about this because... I think in the market research industry, a lot of times, you know, I mean, certainly actionable insight is something that gets a lot of a lot of you know playtime from from a vernacular perspective. Um, but I, but one thing that I oftentimes find is that people are thinking about actionable insight as the end deliverable of their project, and the reality is is that the actionability of that insight starts long before, honestly, the project is even a project. Um, and it goes through, and so there's different stages and, and, and it actually goes back to that journey comment that you're just talking about. I think in order to really enable the actionability, it's about really empowering the learning, the learning journey of your stakeholders all the way through. And so that starts with project framing, like what, why are we actually doing this project? I mean, I think oftentimes, you know, market researchers, you know, internal and external get asks around like, we need this insight, but there's no reason, there's no why or to what end that insight is being created for. Um, and oftentimes I find when you start probing on those things, as you start to probe, the, the shape of the insight that you truly need starts to change. Um, and so that's one of the things that has to happen on the front end. And then there's different points along that journey that get managed all the way through so that as you're generating that insight, you're getting, you're getting people to internalize it, start to think about the kernels of action that they may be able to take from it. 
so that as you then start to prepare that final deliverable, which becomes the you know encapsulated document of the journey, if you will, that it really does act as that continued blueprint for how to take action off of that insight. And the design supports that process. Wow. That's really fascinating. That's awesome. Thanks so much for that. Absolutely. Hey, Brad, this is Brian, and I know you're going to be speaking at the Future of Insight Summit in Athens in December. That's December 5th and 6th. Um, I'd love to know more what, and it's by the way, it's one of the professional workshops and masterclasses. So I'm curious what uh, you'll be speaking about, which is probably the topic you've been talking about so far. But also, what do you hope people kind of take away from that discussion? Yeah, so... What I'm going to be speaking about, it's a masterclass on design thinking. Um, and, and so for those who aren't that familiar with design thinking, you know, what it is, is it's grounded in human-centered design principles. And so some of the key things associated with that is, you know, basically having your users at the center. Like that's critical, having your users at the center of, of the design. Um, it's very iterative in nature. Um, you know, truly agile in nature, you're engaging in this work, not to necessarily validate the solution that you're going down, but in the spirit of shaping the solutions that you want to embrace. Um, And so I'm going to be introducing what design thinking is, you know, this five-step process and some of the key distinctions of that. And oftentimes what I will find is that, you know, uh, market researchers will say, oh, I've done things like that. And generally, I would say that that from a market research perspective, they typically have done step one, which is empathize of that five-step process. But the other four steps is, is generally something that's new. And so what I'm going to do is share what that process is, make it really tangible, but then also give the audience challenges for how to integrate the principles of design thinking, which are about collaboration, experimentation, iteration, how to really bring those principles into their daily work in a tangible way that will help to drive more actionability in their work. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm speaking as well the day before. And one of the challenges that I have is the audience is going to be a little different than most conferences. It's a lot of students. There's going to be academics. There's going to be professional researchers of all types of backgrounds. It feels like this really lends itself to all types of audiences. Is Is that fair to say? I do think that that's fair to say, because I think anybody kind of going in, generally speaking, I would say that people get really excited about the tangibility of design thinking and how it helps to change perspective. Um, I, I work with teams all over the world with, with this methodology where, and in most cases, I'm walking in to work with groups who've never even heard of it before, before I show up. Um, it, it usually... You know, I work with a lot of city governments associated with this, where we're utilizing design thinking to to really tackle a major problem of their city. Um, and generally speaking, that work is is funded through other parties. And so the city's just so grateful to have the money to be able to support this innovation project, but they haven't necessarily defined the methodology that's going to be used to support that. And so I walk in and you know, I ask the question of how many people have ever heard of design thinking or human-centered design and maybe one hand goes up. And when you start to probe, what do you know about that? That's kind of like, not really much. I just read it in a magazine type of thing. And so you're really starting to break it down, but the tangibility of it and how it really helps to, sh- to frame problems and, and start to think about it more holistically uh, just gets exciting for everybody. And it can be applied to every part of your life. I mean, 
uh, you can apply it to your, your personal life. You can apply it to a business challenge. You can apply it to a social challenge. Um, and it can go across products, service, incentive plans, policy, you know, it really has a, a wide reach. So I do think everybody in the audience uh, can take something away and apply it into probably multiple aspects of their life. Awesome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, Brianna, we wanted to run in now. We usually do this research rant of the week. It, it's so weird to ask you now something that you want to <laughs> rant about, like something negative, <laughs> because this has been super positive so far. Uh, but I feel really good about this interview. But <laughs> but uh, I wanted to open up to you. Do you have a, a rant about uh, research? I do have a rant about research, and it actually connects to this particular you know, uh, master class that I'm going to do. So I mentioned, you know, the five-step process of design thinking. And oftentimes, because, you know, a lot of times design and design thinking, human-centered design, people really ground that in new product development. And I think sometimes, you know, designers arrogantly are like, oh, you know, we're the ones who really, you know, develop new product. Well, there's lots of market researchers, I'm sure many that will be in the audience uh, in December, who also do a lot of work in product development. And so, you know, when I, when when I talk about the design side of, of the work that we do, uh, initially people are like, oh, I do that too. And then as you start to get into the deeper layers of what, you know, what the differences are, you find that there are quite a few differences. And so, you know, I guess it would be sort of a challenge and a rant at the same time. So for those people who choose to come to the masterclass and participate and engage, you know, coming with an open mind to say, what can I gain from this? Um, because one of the things that I've come to understand and learn is that the differences between design and market research, while there are differences in methodology, most people want to hang the difference on methodology. And the reality is, is that's not where the difference should be hung. The difference is really the ways in which people work and how they work. So let me explain a little bit. So from a, from a design research perspective, you know, going back to sort of what is the role of the insight. From a design research perspective, the role of the insight is that it's meant to instigate action. Um, and so it's a means to the end. It is not the end. Whereas from a market research perspective, oftentimes the insight is the end. That's where, you know, it goes into that socialization versus the internalization that I was talking about before. From a project mindset, a designer looks at the project as a whole from a how do I solve this problem? Um, whereas a market researcher is more typically looking at it as far as what is the method that I use to get this insight? And so it's a slight difference, but it's a difference because as a user researcher, design researcher is going through, they're just always saying, okay, I'm learning this, but so what does this mean to the actual problem that I'm trying to solve? How is this going to actually drive impact or, you know, drive revenue or whatever you're trying to drive towards as a result of doing that work? The other aspect is the roles that you assume in the project. So a design researcher uh, in addition to being a researcher, would more commonly call themselves like a facilitator, an, an interpreter, an advisor, a translator. Whereas oftentimes, if a market researcher has a name that they define to themselves beyond a market researcher, it's a consultant. Um, and then the last is really around like how the work gets done. And so from a design perspective, the work gets done very collaboratively and it's very iterative in nature. Um, oftentimes it includes a lot of workshops, both internal and external to get to the final artifact. And it's those workshops that also support that actionable insights journey that I was talking about before. 
whereas oftentimes, you know, I've, I'm always baffled, uh, to be real honest, when I talk to market researchers who are on like teams of eight people and they're doing focus groups all over the place. And yet they as a team have never really sat down to process and analyze the information together. Um, I, I'm just always baffled with the, le- with the level of solitaire, solid, uh, you know, how much they're working alone in that process. Whereas, you know, in terms of like how we work as an organization here, it's just so collaborative and iterative in that process. Um, And so it would be, you know, that challenge for the people who come to say, you know, take it in, you know, come in with an openness uh, perspective to say, what am I learning here and how can I apply? You know, the intention is not to walk away from the presentation with you, you know, being a master expert of design thinking, but, you know, from people who have taken similar you know, courses for me um, and that have gone in with that openness, they've walked away with a new level of energy and spark for their own work that has really, you know, supported increased revenue in their business. Right. Man, that's great. That would, that would turn into a positive rant. I thought that was great. Probably the happiest <laughs> rant we've had. Uh, we're going to move now into our version of the four P's, kind of get to know you a little bit better. And so the first P that we have is playlist. So Brianna, what are the last three songs or artists you've listened to? Yeah. So these would be, um, the first is Lauren Daigle. So I am totally in love with this artist right now. Um, uh, and specifically she has two songs that I just love, uh, you know, one, probably my favorite of the two being the rescue song. So that one I find really, you know, speaks to my soul in, in amazing ways. And then the other two actually come from the Greatest Showman uh, soundtrack. Uh, I took my daughter this past weekend to go see Hugh Jackman in concert, which was probably like oh, yeah. the most cool. inspiring and empowering like right. <laughs> concert I've seen like ever in the bathroom afterwards. I overheard a woman saying, you know, a night like tonight just makes me so feel so good to be alive. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's an amazing characterization of what we just experienced. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the, this is me song and then the, uh, and then the, you know, million dreams is probably the other yeah. two. Jeez. Uh, moving on to pages. What is a book you would recommend the people listening to the podcast read? So one of my favorite all-time books, actually, there's two. Can I say two? Can I cheat? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. (laughs) So one of my all-time favorite books is, it's called The Biggest Leap. um, And this is by Gay Hendricks. And why I love, I mean, there's a, there's a couple like really key kernels of like learning, uh, you know, for self-improvement that come out of that particular book, but probably the one that's been the most uh, pivotal for me is this concept of the zone of genius. Um, And so it's a way of looking at what really fuels you from the inside out and and how to to distribute the the other work that you do that doesn't do that to other people. So for me, it's been a really amazing methodology to sort of take a look at, you know, everything that I do in the scope of a day um, and say, you know, what what continues to give me energy that thus, you know, helps me to continue to grow the business and continue to lead my team versus those things that suck energy from me. And then also looking across my team to say, you know, from something that sucks energy for me, it may give energy to somebody else. And how can I utilize that from a place of delegation um, to help us all work better? Uh, So that would be the first one. Uh, That's good. What's the second book? 
The second one is something that I've just started reading that has made a pivotal difference in my life. And this is, it came by recommendation of a friend. It's called Stress Less, Accomplish, Accomplish More. And there's a specific meditation technique in that book that generally I've not been somebody who has resonated with meditation. Like it just doesn't work for me, but this particular yeah. technique does. And it has really, it is tangibly impacted my life in like in just the first you know couple weeks of doing it so for anybody who you know sort of experiences you know stress and anxiety and in any which way which i think for a market research perspective anybody coming into fourth quarter can attract can attest to um i i've found it to be really helpful oh that's awesome uh next one is perform um what is something people don't know about you do you have a hidden talent so I, when I was growing up, I was big into acting. Um, so, so, so big into it and musical theater and all that, that everybody from my hometown could not believe that I didn't go to, you know, didn't follow that path from a career perspective. Um, and so, you know, being on stage uh, is something that I completely enjoy, love. Uh, I've not done a lot of it since college. Um, but that is, you know, getting back into some community theater, you know, or, or improv, uh, as my daughter gets older and, you know, doesn't want to spend as much time with me, <laughs> something that I would love to do. Oh, that's great. And the last thing that we do, uh, is our people normally do a Mount Rushmore, but we want to switch it up and, and do more of a, a three people you could invite to dinner type thing. Uh, just, um, you know, everyone's gone through this interview and it's been super conversational and. I would love to hear like who you would want at your dinner. Like what would your conversation be? Yeah. So I've done some thinking about this and it's a little sentimental and personal, but um, maybe that's the best kind. But yeah, if I were to bring, you know, four people to dinner, basically what I would do is I would have my grandmother and my mother who have both passed uh, come to dinner because uh, both of those women have just been hugely pivotal to who I have become as a person and sort of what my due north is. And then invite my daughter, um, who never met my grandmother. Um, and then she did meet my mother and has some memories of my mother, but from a very, very young age. And so bringing all of us together. And then if I got to invite some more, I would bring my sister and her two daughters to the table as well. First of all, that's great. But no, no, you only guys at this dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Not today. Nope. <laughs> it's your Mount Rushmore. That's fine. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Not today. This is about the ladies and bringing everybody together. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Brianna. Um, how can people reach out to you? What's the best way to reach you? So the best way to reach me is to give me a shout out on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Love to have conversation and learn and share with one another. And so the best way to find me is Brianna Silver. It's B-R-I-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, and it's silver with a Y, so S-Y-L-V-E-R. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brianna. We appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you down at the Future of Insight Summit. Oh, thank you so much. Can't wait to meet you as well. That was awesome. <laughs> That was so good, right? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Brianna. I mean, she is like an open book. Um, I love that interview. Um, and the next one's going to be just as fun. So let's jump into our next interview with Dr. Ari Zelmanow. 
Joining us now is Ari Zelmanow, who is a consumer psychologist and leads the research team at Twitter. Hi, Ari. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Oh, doing great, man. Thank, thanks for joining us, first of all, on the podcast. Um, it's exciting to have you on, and um, I think we'll start off. We typically ask pe- people that join the, the podcast how they got started in marketing research. Um, it's usually an interesting story because most people don't wake up in sixth grade and say, I want to be a market researcher. We usually fall into it. So I'd love to hear your story. Yeah. So uh, I think I would probably be uh, uh, different than most. Um, I was actually a police detective for 10 years. Um, I worked for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Um, And it was there that I became really fascinated in like exploring things and studying and, and understanding the world around me and using that to solve crimes. Um, while I was working, I went and got my master's and ultimately my doctorate in cognitive psychology. And I decided that I wanted to use that skill set, that detective skill set, but in, in the private sector. And so I branched out, I did some consulting, and then I ultimately landed at a a company called Altria in Richmond, Virginia, where I helped, uh, do enterprise and cross category consumer and market research studies. Uh, I did a lot of work in the um, multicultural space. Um, And I loved and am grateful for that opportunity. But I had an opportunity to lead a research team at Twitter uh, that explores the relationships of data and developers and how Twitter interacts with them. And so I took a job at Twitter and that is where I am today. Well, first of all, that's a really interesting background. I'm not sure if I've ever heard of someone being a detective and getting a marketing research. Um, I feel like that's a great, honestly, that's a great skill. I would expect that a detective really has to understand like consumer behavior, right? And um, I think that those skills kind of very, lend- I don't think I, my first glance was, oh, well, market research or detective, but maybe thinking about it, absolutely. You had to learn a lot from being a detective to apply it today, right? Absolutely. In fact, so I like to uh, my, my my personal branding tagline is I'm the world's only consulting detective on consumer and market behavior. A play on Sherlock Holmes, of course. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think that being a detective gave me a unique insight into people, places, the things they do, and the times they do them. So it's really understanding the world and the context and how people behave in certain scenarios, and then being able to explore those at depth. Um, as a detective, things aren't always so clear. Cases don't happen like where, like they do on TV, where it's super clear, all the evidence is there, and you always get the conviction. You have to kind of figure out and put pieces of a puzzle together. Market research is a lot of the same. It's um, it's as a, as an applied researcher, you have to like take pieces of the puzzle, put them together, and figure out what gives uh, what answers the questions the best. No, awesome. Um, I completely agree. That's awesome. Um... Next question, you mentioned it briefly, but can you tell me a little bit more about what Twitter is doing like with research? Yeah, I would argue that Twitter is on the cutting edge of, of what research is doing. We are at the convergence of product, con- customer, and um, market research. So we study how products, uh, how our products interact with, um, with customers, but then we're also exploring customer experience, pricing behavior, market dynamics, and then um, product uh we're exploring how people interact with the products that we make or, or our data products or, or other things. So I, I argue that, that we look at data and research holistically, um, which is, is really a, a cool place to be. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I bet it's pretty cool to work at a such kind of a known brand that collects just a lot of data. A lot of us researchers are probably jealous of uh, what you have at your hands. Well, I think one of the other really cool things is it's a global product. So right. I, I've done and, and, and spoken to researchers in Israel and Australia this year and we're, we're, and talked to researchers in Brazil and Africa. And so it's just really fascinating to see how Twitter is having a global impact and being part of that, but then also getting to solve really complex problems um, as a researcher, which is obviously exciting. Yeah, thanks. Um, next question, you're going to be speaking at the Future of Insight Summit that's uh, coming up in December. That's December 5th and 6th. Um, I'd love a preview of what you're going to be speaking about. Yeah, so I am... Uh... I'm speaking about how businesses have become increasingly dependent on large data sets uh, that, that promise a lot of things like predicting the future or revealing hidden insights. Um, but the problem is, is that businesses, organizations, companies, nonprofits, researchers have become increasingly dependent on data and it's taking businesses away from the focus on making decisions based on the customer. So a customer is not a data set, a data set's a data set. And so understanding the customer in context um, and understanding some of the drivers of that are key and big data has kind of attacked that. And so I am trying to make the point that we should start thinking like a detective and stop focusing on data and start focusing on the problem. Awesome. So you're part of the... Um second day where there's um, master classes. Is that correct? Or, or are you speaking on the first day? I, I think I'm speaking on the first day, but I would, I would have okay. to check the... <laughs> Sorry, I should know that. <laughs> I think you are on the first day as well. Um, so looking forward to that. Um, well, that, that's great. Looking forward to it. The next thing we like to do with our guests is uh, kind of more fun. And we try to get to know people um, at a more personal level. And uh, we, sometimes we do a research rant. And I'm not sure if you have a research rant, but if you have one, we always love to hear it because most people in research like to complain. And I'm um, not sure if you're a big complainer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on any topic. I am absolutely a complainer. So my rant would be that sample size solves all problems. What I find in research, especially applied research in business, is that there's a belief that a larger sample size is going to like be the answer to getting the um, to getting the validation. That's the word, the validation that people that people want. But validation, as we all know, means different things to different people. And so, what's fascinating is that sample sizes doesn't solve all problems. Um, in, in fact, there's a whole branch of statistics, non-parametric statistics, that deals with small sample sizes. In fact, the student's t-test, which is not a non-parametric statistic, but is a parametric statistic, is based on a, a small sample size. So what I would argue is you shouldn't look at the sample size. You should be looking at other things like variance of the population or the phenomenon you're trying to study and look at that holistically rather than just focus on the size of your sample. Man, that is an awesome rant. First of all, I'm impressed a detective would go to that level of detail talking about T-tests. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you have ever had a rant that was that, especially because you have a lot of data on your hands and you're um, talking about maybe you're the best person to state that as you, the reliance on data can be overwhelming. Yeah. And I think I, what I think is interesting, though, is that like we, we seem to forget that context is so important in evaluating right. the, the data that we have. And so I, I would go back to that. 
Awesome. Okay. Let's do a let's do a four P segment. So we took the marketing mix and we turned that into the podcast. We typically ask our guests four questions to get them to know better. Um, four P's and the first P is playlist. So what are the last two or three songs that you've listened to? Well, I'll go to artists because uh, I, it's a little easier for me to to remember like the artists. Um, I listen to Luke Combs, uh, country artist, one of my favorites uh, all the time. Really, really enjoy uh, enjoy his music. Uh, the second is Disney soundtracks or anything Disney. Um, I have four kids. And so we play a game of play a song and guess the movie. And so we were doing that in the car <laughs> yesterday. Um, everything from Aladdin to uh, Little Mermaid. Um, and my kids have become really, really good at that. Um, and then, um, wow, I, I guess I, I would probably stop at two. Um, I listen to a lot of uh, – uh, stuff on the plane. Um, I like, I have a wide eclectic listening of, of music. Like I like, uh, Empire State of Mind by like, uh, like I guess Jay-Z and I like, uh, um, I, I could go on and on, but I, I have a eclectic taste in music. So. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you struggle a little bit with your own personal preference only because you have four kids <laughs> and probably don't have a lot of time to l- pick your own music, right? That's absolutely, absolutely true. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you just named off like your forty favorite songs, maybe you're not a great father. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe true. Although my forty favorite songs would probably be like, so the greatest showman soundtrack. We love that. Right. Um, so that would probably include some of those too. Oh, that's awesome. Um, next P is pages. Um, do you have a book that you'd recommend that people should read? Yeah, I, I believe that everybody should read Animal Farm by George Orwell. And if they haven't read it recently, they should read it again. Because I think it's so applicable in so many different places. And you can kind of see how systems evolve into, into what that book describes, where um, everybody's equal until some are more equal than others. And it, it's just, it, it just speaks to a cycle in, in today's world that I see in business and in politics and in personal relationships. Um, and so I, I would, I would say that, and what's great about it is you could read it in a weekend. Right. That's, that's an awesome book. I think a lot of times our guests feel like they have to name like their, their latest, um, self-help book or business book. And it's great that you kind of go old school. Cause I agree. Animal Farm is a great book that you can apply to today. Love it. Um, next P is perform. Do you have a hidden talent or something that people that don't know about you that you can do? So yeah, I, I guess I, I do. I, I am an Ironman triathlon. I have actually uh, swam, bike, and run 140.6 miles in a day by choice. Um, I did it in Louisville, Kentucky um, in 98 degree temperature when the race was still in yeah. August instead of October. Um, but it was, it, what, it, it was next to like finishing my doctorate. It's probably one of the biggest accomplishment, accomplishments, maybe not – like proudest moment, obviously, I would factor my kids and, and my my marriage into those. But like greatest conquering accomplishment, I would say that that is that is um, that is how it happened. And I think the cool part about it is that my first triathlon that I ever ran was a half Ironman distance. So, oh wow. Okay, I think I might have been – when was that Ironman? Because I remember a big heat wave. I'm from near Louisville. I remember a big heat wave with the Ironman a few years ago. It's amazing that you did it in that heat. That can't be healthy. Oh, it was brutal. It was – it took me – four. 
sorry, it took me 14 hours and change to get, to get it done. Um, and there were times during the day, uh, where I was in a very dark place. Um, there was one time of the day, believe it or not, where I thought medically I was going to pass out. Um, it was right after the swim. And since it was so hot, um, one of the things they teach you in th- these races is you should never do something on race day that you haven't practiced a bunch of time, right. like the idea of deliberate practice. So I, I hadn't ever done this in training, but I took these sponges that they had in these aid stations and I stuffed them in my shirt thinking they were going to cool me off. <laughs> right. But all that did was create humidity. So I wanted them out. So I reached back into, uh, over my shoulder into my back to grab a sponge out and I pulled that muscle in my arm. And that was the only time where I was like, oh my God, I'm nauseous. I'm going to die. I walked it off and I continued and I finished. That's that's just amazing. Like what an accomplishment. I, I, when I used to go to the gym every day, I met some people that were training. I don't think it was the full Ironman. I think it was the half Ironman. And those people were crazy enough for me. I can't even imagine the training that goes into accomplishing something like that. You've got to figure it's about 15 to 20 hours a week. And, and we talk about data and it's really data-driven training. You're trying to like make incremental gains in three different disciplines, swimming, biking, and running. And um, literally you're, you're spending, you could be on a Saturday. It wasn't uncommon for me to be out six to eight hours on a bike. Um, right. It's just, it's just an incredible time commitment. Right, especially when fitting in that fifteen hours when you you know you have a job, you have a family. That's really got to be stressful. Uh, it, it, you have to be very very dedicated to time management. You have to know like what you just have to be very very de- de- deliberate about planning and scheduling things. Yeah, bet. Um, last P. Um, this is a people P, which we um, we usually try to do a Mount Rushmore, which is the top four of something, which can be anything. It's originated on people. But um, do you have any top four Mount Rushmore? I do, but I, I would kick it off with my rant because um, I'm going to do <laughs> I'm going to do foods. Um, first of all, okay. my first P would, uh, but it's not P. I guess it's F's is pizza, but it is a P. I guess still isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> but. I argue that the only pizza that exists, the only thing that deserves to be called pizza is New York style, hand tossed. Um, anything else is just cheesy, saucy bread. It's, in fact, I'm really, really particular about it. So pizza would be one of my peas. Um, I, I would guess the next one would be uh, sushi. I love sushi. I, I could eat it every day. Um, probably not on top of pizza, but separately. Um I would then say the next food choice I would have would be Thai food, but I would be specific and say it would be, it would be a P also. It'd be pod CU. Uh, I love, I love it. And any Thai restaurant I go to, I, that's what I order. And I, um, I judge that Thai restaurant based upon that against all other Thai restaurants that I've gone to. (laughs) Okay. And then finally I would, I would say, uh, iced coffee is another one. And although not a food, probably more of a drink, it's something that like I, I love it and I, and I get it where I can uh, yeah. and I like it. Although um, if, if I had to pick another food, I could probably, I could throw one in there. I'd say Ramaki, but that would be, uh, <laughs> but, but I gave you the four. So <laughs> um, typically I try to argue with guests. Well, I don't argue, but I, I comment on the guests, uh, Mount Rushmore. I love your pizza take. First of all, I used to live in New York. The best pizza in the world is in New York. You could just walk down the street and run into 20 awesome pizza places. I once um, spent, I, I lived there for a little while and I used to spend um, going to the best 
pizza places and um, have fond memories of that. So I love that take. It's fantastic. And I, you know what? I'm sold now that there's something in the water in New York because there's also yeah. – there's nothing like a New York bagel. Bagel. You can't yeah. get bagels like that anywhere else in the country. I, I, just, I just, right. just can't. Yep. Completely agree. I was just in New York a couple weeks ago, and I, I've been regretting not getting pizza ever since then. I love to go to Brooklyn. Grimaldi's used to be my favorite, but there's been some drama with Grimaldi's. I'm not sure if you've been there, but that's that's my favorite pizza place. That is a, a – uh, I haven't been – I don't know if I've been to that one. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I when I go up there, I have to do that. And the other thing I have to do when I'm up there is I have to get Chinese food because there's no Chinese food. Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um well, thank you. This has been a great interview. I loved having you on. And um, is there anything you want to promote or um, a Twitter handle or an email address? Uh, so my Twitter handle is at Zelmanow. Feel free to to, uh, to reach out there. And then a good email address would be Ari at uh, AriZelmanow.com. Uh, and I'm happy to like answer any questions or, or engage with anybody that, that has, uh, has something to say. Argue with pizza, right? Uh, yeah, but there's really um, no argument. I don't know how you could argue. <laughs> and I don't. I think that if you throw a lot of toppings on your pizza, you got me started again. You get started on it. <laughs> toppings. It, it, I, I'm a minimalist yeah. when it comes to pizza too. Yeah, a pizza should stand alone, just on a slice of cheese. A hun- a hun- Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, if, reach out to Ari if you have any questions, and we look forward to seeing you December 5th and 6th in Athens, Georgia. Thanks, Ari. Thank you. I wasn't there, but that felt great. <laughs> I did all right, right? You did great, man. We didn't have um, producer Brian. We didn't have um, our host, our normal host. It was just myself and intern Emma, um, a backup producer. I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, intern. Yeah, Dr. Ari is awesome, right? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, That'll do it for this episode of IntelliCast and part two of the Future of Insights Summit podcast series. We have one more. Uh, series coming up would be part three that'll be coming out uh, in a couple of weeks um, hoping that it gears up for the future of insight summit december 5th and 6th at the university of georgia please go online try to sign up um, get reach out to these speakers and um, i know it's going to be an awesome conference that brian you're speaking at right yes i'll be there i told ari during the interview that i was um, nervous i think i speak before him so my joke is that everybody's going to be there getting a good seat for his speech and they're going to be forced to listen to me for 25 minutes and i'm super excited so yeah go to futureofinsights.com it's not that expensive of a conference and there's you know i don't think there's a lot of conferences and early December. Yeah. So um, if you have a little budget left, head down there. It's it's not that expensive. There are worse places to be at the beginning of December than Athens, Georgia. Absolutely. Come on. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.